You're listening to SBS News. Several recent deadly acts of extremism labelled as terror attacks have significantly shaped the way governments and agencies tackle national and international security. In this episode of To the Extreme, we delve deeper into the US Capitol insurrection and the Christchurch massacre to better understand the risks and politics of the far right. A global rise in extremism activity and threats from the far right has been compared to a disease. Like an illness, authorities assess the origins, geographical and social formations of an extremism outbreak. They also monitor where the activity is concentrated, how it's transmitted and who is susceptible to infection. Speaking to a Victorian inquiry into extremism, Professor James Martell from San Francisco State University applied the same methodology to mapping and understanding the far right in order to find ways to counter it. In the US, I can attest to the development of this disease, which has grown in leaps and bounds the disease begins to grow and spread. Once the disease really sets in, these subjects are unaffected by facts, science, or disapproval. I think they're suspended in a web of thoughtlessness, the fungus itself, where everything is already known and everything is already okay. We are not at the full bloom of the disease just yet, and we're facing the worst crisis of our democracy since the U.S. Civil War. I truly hope that your inquiry helps to arm Victoria and Australia more generally against this terrible disease. The inquiry is investigating the rise of far-right extremism in Victoria and the risk it poses to communities. While Australia is examining its concerns, the United States is doing some soul-searching of its own. will be remembered for an unprecedented event in United States history, widely considered one of the largest ever mobilizations of right-wing groups in a democracy. The January 6th assault on the Capitol by supporters of former President Donald Trump was an attempt to prevent the certification of the 2020 election result. A violent mob pushed its way into the Capitol, hunting for then-Vice President Mike Pence, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and other politicians. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not Take it anymore, and that's what this is all about. Five people died in the riot, and hundreds have subsequently been charged with federal crimes. Joshua Fisher Birch is a researcher for the Counter Terrorism Extremism Project in New York City. He says Donald Trump's failure to concede his election loss sets a dangerous precedent. He also says President Trump, as U.S. protocol demands he is known, remains a dangerous threat to the country's democracy. The myth of stolen elections has the potential to be used in the future to sow discord and distrust, promote violence, and delegitimize future elections. 
denying the results of an election when they are unfavorable to you goes against democratic principles and can empower right-wing extremist groups and future authoritarians. Far-right groups, Proud Boys and the base, have recently been listed as terrorist groups by New Zealand. Proud Boys were last year named a terrorist group in Canada and the base was previously declared a terrorist group in Britain, Canada and Australia. In the US... The State Department only lists foreign groups as terrorist entities. Lydia Khalil is the author of the soon-to-be-published Lowy Institute paper, Rise of the Extreme. There were norms around a a president um, conceding power. And so there was this erasure and erosion of norms that we took for granted. And that really clarified for me how important norms are rather than laws and legislation. Dr. David Smith is an associate professor in American politics and foreign policy at the United States Studies Center. This was another example of the way that Trump showed the rest of the world's far right exactly what was possible. Trump just kept pushing the boundaries because he refused to be constrained by anything. And I think for a lot of far-right actors, that was the lesson that they took. Just don't allow yourself to be constrained by anything, that these these barriers that you think stand in the way are a lot weaker than they actually look. And if you just push hard enough against them, they're going to fall over. So how does Australia compare in terms of its risk and the politics of extremism? There are protective mechanisms in Australia that are not present in some other Western democratic nations. Some experts point to Australia's tough gun laws following the April 1996 Port Arthur massacre of 35 people. Professor Khalil points to voting. You know, things like compulsory voting. So we have a less of that polarised political culture here. And, you know, it comes down to simple electoral laws. With that, I think it shouldn't let us become complacent. I think it should allow us to continually guard what we have. So we're certainly not immune to these dynamics. There is a growth. But I'd say on... Uh, you know, to balance out that negative, we do have a bunch of protective positive factors in Australian society. She also highlights Australia's effort to uphold confidence in democratic institutions, comparing it to the disintegration of democracy in other countries. To truly combat it really requires no less than the regeneration and the renewal of our democracy and the continual guarding of our democracy. And we've seen erosion to the democratic systems This phenomenon kind of fits in with broader democratic erosion. And to say that we need to tackle that aspect of it rather than just focusing on counterterrorism operations if we're trying to truly get at the heart of the issue. Dr. Smith says Australia has enjoyed a peaceful history, relatively free from violent extremism. But while the threat to the Australian community is small, it still exists. If you try to follow the development of right-wing extremist groups in Australia, you quickly lose count of how many are constantly appearing and disappearing. Even though their presence in Australia is disturbing in a lot of ways, it doesn't pose the same kind of threat that you see in the United States. We shouldn't assume that Australians just don't do that. Australians do do that, given the circumstances. It was an Australian, Brenton Tarrant, who carried out the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand. I saw one gun in the, the floor and police were to stop in here. There was a lot of people die injured. This is one of New Zealand's darkest days.
On the 15th of March 2019, 51 people died and 49 were injured in a shooting attack on two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand during Friday prayers. The man responsible was sentenced to life for the crimes. It's the first terrorism conviction recorded in New Zealand. The government's response was swift. The Christchurch Call to Action Summit response was quickly initiated by New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and convened on May 15th in Paris, two months after the attack. The counter-extremism project's Joshua Fisher-Birch says the call allowed for better recognition of the international threat. The Christchurch call currently has 54 government signatories as well as the European Commission, the Council of Europe, UNESCO and multiple tech companies, including the largest social media and video streaming sites in in the US and Europe. Dr. David Smith says the event was galvanizing. This attack really made people realize that violent right-wing extremism wasn't something that was unique to the US, that it's a major problem here. I think that they did have a uh, a pretty significant effect in waking Australians and New Zealanders up to the threat that is, uh, you know, that is actually in in our midst. Dr Smith says a Macquarie University paper analysed the attack's so-called manifesto, which had been published online, describing it as a cultural artefact of digital white nationalism. What is often referred to as white nationalism, I would actually call white internationalism that white people globally are an endangered minority. So whereas nationalism is traditionally focused on your own nation and the strength of your own nation, this kind of white internationalism, it means Australians see things like high levels of Muslim immigration in Western Europe and they feel threatened by that because they believe that there's a global conspiracy to replace white people. That conspiracy is known as the Great Replacement Theory, which is the idea that white people are being replaced by minority populations, largely through immigration. While the specific targets and methods of spreading this theory may be fresh, the concept of white people concerned about being replaced is not. Similar concepts influenced US white supremacist groups in the 1960s and 70s, including the Ku Klux Klan and racist skinhead groups in the 1990s. Professor Khalil says the theory inspired the crisis church attacker, who in turn inspired others, meaning such so-called lone wolf attacks can't be perceived as isolated cases. And so I think we need to understand these lone attackers as part of a continuum and part of a broader kind of ecosystem of right-wing extremist violence. It's really tempting to say that these are just lone individuals just going off on their own who are disturbed, but that's not the whole story. Earlier this year, Australian Security Intelligence Organisation Director General Mike Burgess said violent extremism currently covers half its caseload. ASIO's focus is on a small number of angry and alienated Australians. We're seeing a growing number of individuals and groups that don't fit left-right spectrum at all. Instead, they're motivated by a fear of societal collapse, a specific social or economic grievance or conspiracy. Individuals who hold these views and are willing to support violence to further them are best and most accurately described as ideologically motivated violent extremists. He said children under the age of 18 are involved in around 15% of ASIO's new counter-terrorism investigations.
The number of minors being radicalised is getting higher and the age of minors being radicalised is getting lower. Children as young as 13 are now embracing extremism and that's happening with religiously motivated violent extremism and ideologically motivated violent extremism. As the Director General of Security, this trend is deeply concerning. As a parent, this trend is deeply distressing. As a nation, we need to reflect on why some of our teenagers are hanging Nazi flags and portraits of the Christchurch killer on their bedroom walls, and why others are sharing beheading videos. Joshua Fisher-Birch says communities need to be generally aware of such matters without being afraid to go about their daily business and routine. Awareness is key. It's important to educate yourself about the threat posed by the extreme right to individuals and society as a whole. Learning about the white supremacist movements and then also learning about what people have done in the past to expose them to create resilient communities is, you know, it's very important to to do that as well and to see how people have fought back against it. Mr Burgess says the young people being lured online are not yet lost causes and can be rehabilitated. Dr David Smith echoes that view. We shouldn't just go around distrusting everybody all the time. I wouldn't lose hope. We're talking about people... Um, at very confusing and demoralising stages of of their life, um, of their life in a world which they still don't know a huge amount about yet, being drawn to to these radical ideologies. Um, I think especially younger people, I think they actually can be persuaded out of those positions. I certainly think that young people who get radicalised can uh, be de-radicalised in, in most cases, absolutely. To report any suspicious or suspected terrorist activity, contact the National Security Hotline on 1800 123 400 or triple zero in an emergency. I'm Stephanie Corsetti. And that was Marcus Megalokonomos. This is To The Extreme. A production of SBS News. For more episodes, go to sbs.com.au forward slash news. You can also listen to this series and more on the SBS News In-Depth podcast on Apple, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts.